2: We call it Epcot it will be our experimental motorbike city of tomorrow.
3: Welcome
4: to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was and the way it is
5: in your memories.
6: All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Boyne of Hist- Historical Society. This is episode 68. Magic Journeys. will be taking you back to that film that ran at the Imagination Pavilion only for a few years before moving on to another location. We'll talk all about that tonight. I am your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me as always this afternoon, Mr. How Bowers coming in from Tampa. How are you doing tonight, How? Aloha. I am doing just fine, thank you. And you know, if it wasn't for your video, which I think we'll have to release, of the you, you tripod Magic Journeys, which is amazing, and I was able to do a little magic on it.
5: Yeah, the- The colors aren't as, you know, fantastic, but it's not, you know, it's as as good as we're going to get until Disney releases that pristine transfer that they showed us at the D23 event in Orlando. You think you're the only
6: person that held a 3D lens up to your camera for the whole shot? (laughs) I hope
5: I'm not the only one. (laughs) I'm sure there were all kinds of other smart people just like me who figured that trick out. Well,
6: if you had the left lens, if any listeners have the right lens... Then we can kind of combine it. We can make our own 3D film again.
5: So Let's get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're
4: looking for it. (laughs) We can have a 3D time. Well, with that, we'll welcome Mr. Brian P. Miles. Good evening, everybody. Greetings and salutations from the city of brotherly love where hot town summer in the city is underway. Yeah. It's getting warm out there.
6: Yes, it is. All right, and also coming to Ohio, last but not least, Mr. JT Kujaer.
7: How you doing, JT? I'm great. We're in the summer mode too. Excited. It's it's yeah. uh, summer breaks here. It was a comfortable seventy degrees today. Not too hot. Not too yep. cold. Just a nice day. It's
4: Fahrenheit.
6: Yeah. Yes, yeah.
7: Fahrenheit. Sorry. Yeah, we're we're doing good and, though.
6: And you switch from worrying about other people's kids to worrying about your own kids now that the summer's here,
7: right? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit of all that. It's. yeah always worrying about mine though
6: (laughs) that's right that's right all right well let's get started with the mailbag jt you've got a whole bunch of stuff we had some late breaking ones come in over the past few hours as well which is always interesting to get these at the last minute kind of put the brakes on some things and do a yui and
7: I'll tell you, I didn't do a Yui at all. I just hammered (laughs) down straight through all this. Um, So the first one that I have here, and I couldn't remember if we addressed this. And if we did, you're going to have to tell me to stop. Sure, yeah. Andy Dolph wrote us, and and it looked like him and Howe were writing back and forth. Andy addressed the mannequins control board photo that we it's a pretty much a disney looks like a professional photo you see the dancers on the stage it says mannequins um and we'll put this in the show notes he kind of goes around and he says sort of what each computer he his best guess is doing um andy i believe uh it was in the industry or, or something of that note so here we go i'm going to read this now to you um, he says, my best guess is what we're looking at here is all lighting control. I'm fairly sure that the console on the left is an ETC expression. The monitor that's just to the right of the left console is, displaying, is the display for that console. ETC made that line of consoles for several decades, and they were very standard for theatrical lighting control in many places. Lots of places still use them. Um, he even mentioned, uh, that they used a three and a half floppy, which, uh, is funny. I'm not much sure about the console on the right, but if he was going to guess, he'd say, uh, it's a second light board to control moving lights. In those days, it was very typical to run conventional theatrical lighting. Uh, He says, uh, lights with halogen bulbs that run by dimmer packs from one console and moving the automated robotic lights from another console, each with their own operator. And there is two operators in this picture. Running moving lights in those days was a very specialized skill. In fact, I think this was the era when basically all moving lights were made and owned by Verilite. They didn't sell them, only lease them in a package that included a console and a technician. Uh, So, go ahead. I'm reminded of, like, when
4: Disney brought the Osborne lights, how it was like, wow. And then 15 years later, you could buy it at Costco, (laughs) like the whole setup for, for $12 to do the same thing at your house.
6: I was going to say, just what JT did, and it can now be done with two iPhones, one person, and seven LED lights, right? <laughs> and a light bulb. I know. Yeah. It's,
7: it is. it is I mean, two people compete. I mean, it's full computers here they're looking like to run this whole setup. And I mean, this, was, this wasn't this was even like, you know, 1970s Studio 54 here. It was This was into the well into the 90s. Uh, I I'd never worked in them in this era, but my understanding is they were so complex and hard to keep running that doing it that way was the only chance to have them be reliable. So super interesting, Andy. And if you look at this photo, it definitely lends a little bit to that. But I, I think that goes to show what went into Pleasure Island just to make it to happen. And I, we're gonna hit on that tonight too with uh, the Magic Journey stuff in our interview. You start hearing these backstories; it's it's just insane how much effort and, and time went into the, all this stuff. So,
5: yeah, I recall the besides just the normal lights that you would expect in the disco up on the stage where the dancers were. I think there there was basically like a matrix of movable lights that they could also like flash and have it run like uh, make it look like it was moving from left and right and back and forth and up and down and strobe and all kinds of stuff. So I bet that in itself was like a very complicated piece of uh,
7: stuff to run. Yeah, just just to entertain a bunch of people dancing and drinking. Yep. Okay, uh, as I did last month, I went into my, my archive. As I said, if you tweet us or you message us on a social where it's kind of tougher to, to find, I, I try to save those as well. Found one here from back in September of 2020, of all things. Uh, it's from our old pal, which I feel like we've read this before. I read from him before, Jason Burley. He uh, sent us some pictures from a recent trip to uh, Disney World. You know, just some selfies. He's got the uh, the carpet wall on the monorail. He's got uh, he's at the key, the Kugel ball there. A uh, bunch of various uh, uh, things going on with Jason. So thank you for sharing that with us, Jason. Okay, this one here is. Let me open this one. This is from John Baldwin and. J- Brian, I'm going to let you take this because I know you have a better version of this. I'm looking, I think I'm looking at the fourth email here between everybody. Uh, John wrote us about the props and the pieces parts at Port Orleans French Quarter. Isn't that right?
4: Yeah, we had gotten an email a few months back that I think we shared in last month's episode uh, querying the guy had been watching, I think, the Discovery Channel where they had gone into uh, a float works down in New Orleans, a factory that manufactured the parade floats that are used in Mardi Gras parades in New Orleans and and manufactured for other places. And he thought it looked identical to several of the pieces that hung on the wall in Port Orleans' French Quarter back when uh, their food court had more Mardi Gras uh, theming. And we, uh, we looked at, The comparisons and, you know, our answer on last month's show was we don't know definitively, but they sure look identical. And, you know, Disney doesn't make this stuff themselves, so it it certainly would make sense that they would be buying them from whoever provides those to people. And then we got a follow-up email uh, from uh, a guy uh, just – it's funny because John Baldwin checked back in with us because my reply to him – about it had been uh, had been lost in his in his uh, spam folder. so John's email came in just at the point uh, where we got this interesting email uh, just this week from Jacques Abadi, and I apologize if I didn't get the uh, Frenchness or Acadianness of that name <laughs> uh, but Jacques wrote to us and said the crew of Caesar uh, was the organization that paraded at Pleasure Island. Caesar began parading in 1980 in the New Orleans suburb of Metairie, Louisiana. Once two of my cousins were in the parade, one the queen and one a maid. They both made the trip to Disney. Blaine Kern was the man who started Kern Studios and Mardi Gras World, which is the factory we talked about, the floatworks we talked about last month. And he started building Mardi Gras floats as a young man and went on to be known as Mr. Mardi Gras for his dominance of the industry. In the early days, he was recruited by Disney, but he chose to remain in New Orleans. The story is he believed he would be a small fish in Hollywood, but a big fish in New Orleans. Kern Studios does the floats for the Universal Mardi Gras celebration to this day. Hmm. So it's an interesting confluence of uh, Mardi Gras. Apparently... Mardi Gras World is the place to go for Mardi Gras stuff. Are we gonna have a Mardi Gras party anytime? Because we might I we might need to go there. That just opens us up to all kinds of trouble. Wow. It might, it might, yeah,
7: it might not be right. Really we know bad. who to call that's, though if we ever change our mind. A,
4: absolutely. Jacques my first call. That's right.
7: Well, thank you, Jock. Thank you, uh, John. We appreciate all that on the Mardi Gras, New Orleans stuff there. Next up is Colleen. Colleen sent us an Instagram message, and this will be shared in the show notes. She shared a, uh, speaking of Mardi Gras, I see how I did that, a 1996 Mardi Gras cup from Pleasure Island that's uh, chilling at her place of business. I, I don't know. Maybe she works at Mardi Gras World. Who knows? And that's, Maybe. <laughs> we'll go back. But Colleen uh, shared that with us. So we appreciate that. Thank you. Dane is up next. Dane wrote and said in one episode, we mentioned a guide to Tomorrowland, guide to Tomorrowland. He wants to know what is that? And I really don't know. Do you guys know what you were talking about when you said guide to Tomorrowland?
4: Well, Dane, episode 26 just happened for you, but episode 26 (laughs) happened for us like four years ago.
7: That was, uh, uh, I'll take you guys way back here. That was our episode, Tiny Bubbles, about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Ah, there we go. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, we had it in a giveaway, included a guide to Tomorrowland. Couldn't right. find an image on your site. Does it ring a bell? He just would love to see what it is. If is. I'm sorry, it's not on the site. We will get it on the site.
5: Because uh, I have it, and we have it somewhere in the archive. So we'll pass it on to you guys so we can uh, put it up there. It highlighted um, some of the attractions that hadn't been put in yet. Like it It kind of mentioned, I believe at the time it was written, it's it's still thought the Wedway was going to have wheels instead of, uh, sorry, be driven by wheels rather than by uh, linear induction motors. And there were a couple of other things. Well, one of the interesting things is it put 20,000 leagues under the sea into Tomorrowland instead of Fantasyland. So it must have been, you know, early 1970s. That uh, this thing was put together, so I'll uh, I'll make sure to send it
7: to you, JT, so you can put it in the show notes. Okay, thank you, Dane. We appreciate that. Next up is Carla. Carla has written us before. She said, "Hey guys, love the retro food episode. I just listened to it a few times." Loved looking at the 1981 food guide too that you posted. She says, "I'm guessing I'm not the first one to send this in, but Earl of Sandwich is where the Gourmet Pantry used to be, and the Wolfgang Puck Cafe was previously Mini Mia's Pizzeria." She doesn't have clear memories of Heidelberg's Deli, Heidelberger's Deli, uh, but I know that was one of the. That's the two they went to. The Gourmet Pantry every time we went to the village, and we ate at Mini Mia's as well. So thank you, Carla, for that.
4: Can we? This is a great opportunity to mention the seventy-two thousand emails we got about Dunderbacks and the German restaurants that yes, <laughs> people
7: are, are beloved around the country. Apparently, for sure, we got that, and we did uh, got some some beer pictures of the the Schäfferhofer we mentioned, which oh yeah, yeah. I I, I don't know if people knew. That was in there uh, i saw one person surprised to find it it seems to be pretty local even though it seemed like so uh, one of those special things you only buy at disney world and then when you see it in your grocery store a mile from your house it kind of takes away the excitement of it i think so thank you carla for that all right we're getting there almost done here and we had a, a lot of good stuff though so this is from philip taylor and i love this philip this is probably one of my f- this this gets my pick of the month for our my favorite message Uh, Phil says uh, the Pleasure Island episodes were great. They reminded me of a friend who was in the nightclub business for years. He was also in the high-profile security business. He said basically security guards are rich people. Occasionally, Disney would hire him to be the guy that would protect the stars at Downtown Disney and Pleasure Island. He told me a funny story about shopping after hours with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman.
1: Uh,
7: So now we need to know. What year did Tom and Nicole um, d- break up? Because we could kind of date this this era a little bit. I mean, they were
4: together for the whole '90s, weren't they? They, they, they yeah. made Far and Away in like 1991 or 92. That's where they met, and you know, they, I think they were together for most of the '90s and maybe the early 2000s. It was.
7: Uh, Philip goes on to say that he get he when Tom Cruise when you're Tom Cruise you could just open any store you wanted at any time of the day and there is that story you've heard about Tom Cruise was one of the few people or one of the people that made it public that rented out the castle to stay there It mm-hmm. wasn't in the yeah. year of a million dreams winner maybe he won who knows but uh, they said at one point during the shopping Tom decided to start a game of touch football in the store with uh, Disney football he picked up. I wish I could not every store has football so this whoever you know we could probably iron this get this down to where it was at some point but I don't think it was at Pleasure Island though either uh he says his friend played uh, the game with him they completely trashed the store and uh, at the end Tom said just send me the bill I'll pay for it so it's that is a great story it's hilarious but at the same time it's it's Seems it's, just just right about right for Tom Cruise. Right, like right, let's right just right about
4: the reputation. Yeah, let's just <laughs> right about the reputation. Acts like the, a lunatic for the guy that walked into a shot or did the sound wrong on that. Remember that tape that came out last year?
1: You're back here in Hollywood making movies right now because of us. We are creating thousands of jobs. You <laughs> I don't ever want to see it again. Ever.
2: And if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again,
4: you're f- gone. Well, you know the story about Artie when he was on the Jerry Maguire set. His scene got cut. Yeah. But uh, he, he, he has like three stories about like you weren't. A, they, nobody was allowed to look at Tom Cruise when he was. But he does all of his own stunts. He and, is Tom uh, Cruise,
7: too. Let's be honest. I mean, he still
4: looks like he's 27 and he's 60
7: so thank you Phil for that I love the story any that goes to anybody if you we love getting these stories because Phil without you that story would be probably lost forever that's that's awesome uh, my final thing here I just want to reach out and say if you don't haven't done it or you have done it uh, we're still on spectra radio Thursdays for throwback Thursday radio that's at, I believe 9 a.m we have uh, we have an roughly an hour on there of of uh, Classic Disney music. It's uh, super high-quality audio. It's a lot of fun to be on there, and uh, click that on Thursday morning. So check out Spectro Radio on your various streaming apps. For uh, the chance to get on our show, though, messages, comments, tweets, we try to look at all of it, but send us an email for something like super important, a big story, anything like that, podcast at retrowdw.com. Uh, you get a chance to be on the show. We don't get to all of them. We try to reply to everybody. If we don't reply to you, apologies. But uh, we we definitely appreciate all the messages, photos, stories, and memories that you send us.
6: All right, and guys, you know I got something to give away this month. I know we uh, you know we have given away a couple different things. How last month we talked about those. Uh, Three little books. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We talked about the 10th anniversary book, the 15th anniversary book, and the 20th anniversary hardcover, right? And I said, "Oh, I've got the 15 and the and and the 20." So I ran out and ordered the 10. And the day before it arrived, the 10 was sitting. It was there next to the other ones. I didn't realize <laughs> I actually already had it for the you know the 4.99 I spent or whatever it was. We have the what's it called? Walt Disney World the first decade hardcover book uh, to give away. So that's I'll send that. That's a good, that out that's to a good price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a very good price, yeah. So, uh, JT, we need a uh,
7: retro keyword. How about uh, decade?
6: Decade, there we go. All right, send the subject line decade, send your email to contest at retrowdw.com, and we will pick a random winner from all entries. (laughs) All right, well, it's time for this month's topic, which, as we mentioned at the top of the show, is Magic Journeys. It's a 3D film that ran at the Imagination Pavilion in Epcot. And uh, we're going to dial it way back here and go back through some of the history. And we're going to talk about the theater, the music. We're going to do a walkthrough, the entire, uh, entire film and everything. So uh, I've been doing a lot of research on this, guys. I have to say, like, everything we start. Remember last month we promised. We said, oh, we'll do Magic Journeys and Imageworks. Yeah, that lasted about fifteen minutes into my research for this <laughs> for this episode. I was like, "That's it." ImageWorks is out. So, for those of you who are excited about ImageWorks, it will be coming in a separate episode. There was just too much to unpack here. We How to has an hour here. and a
4: half on the pin push table alone? So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and
6: there's so much there. There's there's music to talk about for ImageWorks, and and, and so much visuals to talk about. So it will be another day. So. Um, All right, so Magic Journeys. Um, We're going to turn the clock back to 1927 when Murray Lerner was born, um, who turned out to be the director for this film. And the reason I'm starting with um, Murray is that um, we really have to understand some of his history before we can understand why he was chosen uh, to make Magic Journeys at Epcot. So he was a literature major at at Harvard um, and he formed the school's first film society and uh, he, he produced a film called A Touch of Time and it became Life Magazine's movie of the week. I don't know how a magazine has a movie of the week, but I guess somehow we can do that. And uh, the film was really groundbreaking and that really became, he became well known for that through his entire career, being very uh, groundbreaking. So ironically, we moved to 1955, a date all Disney historians know very well, and he creates an undersea movie called Secrets of the Reef. Uh, A little later on, Lerner received an Oscar nomination for his documentary Festival in 1967 about the Newport Folk Festival. And he also directed concert films for The Who, Jimi Hendrix and all sorts of other artists. Uh, But Secrets of the Reef is really the important one here because it was sponsored by Marineland of Florida. So let's fast forward to 1978. Marineland contacts Murray and says, hey, we want a new film, a new process and a new theater. And he starts thinking about it. So while this is kind of in the early beginnings of IMAX um, and they felt it wasn't exciting enough. So he and Murray and Marine settled on a 3d film and the, the film sea dream is born. See what I did there. The sea is born from the living I seas. See. Yeah. You see? Oh, you see? All right. Um, the film was the first ever 3d film and it also played at the Cannes film festival. So, how does this relate to, to Disney? Is that Lerner? A quote that he said is that he wants to get audiences involved and make them part of the film. And that he always put effort into getting audience reaction to his films, and 3D could bring audience participation. And he actually would watch his 3D films with the audience. And he said, This is really interesting, too. He says, You can't understand the film unless you see them with an audience. Now, think about that for a minute, what we're talking about tonight, right? The interaction that he wanted with the film, we're going to talk a little bit about how you can go online, you can watch Magic Journeys now, and you might not get it. But if you can't understand the film unless you see it with an audience and the 3D happening, it makes Magic Journeys on YouTube in 2D flat. It doesn't work as much as it would in the theater. So after Sea Dreams, um, Lerner wins an Academy Award for Best Documentary, Mao to Mozart. And um, all of a sudden, he is primed to be chosen for... Uh, another film. Now with Journey to Imagination, Traction was running behind on schedule. Now don't forget, remember, guys, Journey to Imagination didn't open until what March '83, somewhere in there, right? So uh, they're running behind, and um, they need to open the Imagination Pavilion or risk losing the sponsorship of Eastman Kodak. So uh, basically, Kodak had a clause uh, where he allowed they could pull out of the contract, and um, you know Wed needed something to really something to fill in this gap really quick. So the decision was made to premiere a film in the uh, Magic Eye studio in lieu of an attraction for, you know, for the time being. And um, we'll find out here that Magic Journeys itself almost didn't make that deadline. So now Disney needed someone that could deliver a movie that played big. Guests needed to feel like they a part of the action, similar to experiencing a concert film is what they were going after. Uh, Murray was a perfect choice uh, because the narrative was loose. I think the narrative is extremely loose when we talk about later. Um, and it allowed for natural landscapes and a more documentary and feel to it. So they contracted Lerner uh, for, for Magic Journeys. Um, he developed the script and did his own storyboard. And he is quoted as saying, I don't know where it came from. My imagination, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite fitting for the imagination uh, pavilion. Um, and again, they talked to him afterwards and, uh, we're going to hear from Murray himself here in a second, but, uh, he said he wanted to interact with the audience and every second he had to play with space and dimensionality. Um, and it was, it, it continually evolved as he was filming it. And, uh, but let's, let's hear a little bit what Murray has to say about magic journeys.
3: Magic journeys was a very big project I did for Disney in 3d and uh, had a lot of uh, never-before-tried effects in 3D, which I brought to it. New new ideas to create this, in a way, unreality. What I did in the Epcot film was extend my experimentation to a whole bunch of new factors, which is, as I say, changing the interocular, I I always try to get stuff to come off the screen and kind of make you feel you're there. And uh, a lot of people don't like that, but I like it, you know. I I go all the way with that. I think the only interesting thing about 3D is to uh, dramatize the space between you and the screen. And that's what I try to do in all my 3D work.
6: I think the synopsis really of magic journeys and we're going to get into the details of it here in a little bit is that it is it presents our world through the eyes of a child and that's a that's a tough thing to swallow i don't know some people could say it's a dream but i don't know what you guys think but we'll talk about uh, some of that a little bit later um and you know the other thing too is his style learner style of film really drew you in close to the action the 3d format Put a different perspective on things and it really helps explain well for all intents and purposes right it's eerie at times it's really an eerie film and a little freaky um but there's little distance between the audience and the people that are on the screen so it just brings it that much closer um last thing is that they they did need an executive producer and the late randy bright was was chosen for that and uh, as we know randy bright is a disney legend and all right, so guys, who remembers from when we did Horizons what 3D is? Come on, JT, do you remember?
7: Uh, it's when you put the glasses on and it tricks your <laughs> eyes, and you. you I, I like. I prefer 4D actually. You, oh, you like
6: four? You want to get splashed with water and, the and air, scent, and the scents sense, and all that stuff. Yes. Okay, so. Our eyes are binocular vision, right? So it's replicating our human vision. Um, images hit, when we're looking at something, the images hit each other, uh, each of our eyes at a slightly different angle, uh, angle, and they're fused by the brain into one 3D image. Um, in 3D movie making, each camera acts as an eye, and then through the polarized glasses, the left side sees the left, the right side sees the right, and your brain does the rest putting everything together. So, um, And what's really interesting is we talked about when we did our Horizons 3D thing, we, we when we made horizons 3d from the, from Howe's tripod. Um, the, we found out that the average human eye is separated by about two and a half inches. And, um, this is really interesting that some of the setups and the cameras that they used here were over a hundred feet apart to get the 3d effect. So it's not always about keeping the camera just like a human, which I thought was interesting. Um, I read a, I did a lot of research on learner and through newspapers.com and, and found out, um, cut through a couple interviews and stuff. And I, I find this fascinating that he said that most people at the time would have been against what he was doing. Um, He said that 3d was really conservative at the time. And he attributes the 3d from the seventies and eighties as a pretty postcard. And he said, this, this is, here's another interesting quote to think about. This came out of people thinking that 3d had to undo the falseness of 2d. Right? and prevent eye strain. So undo the th- th- falseness of 2D means you've been watching this stuff that's just so false, we have to over-accentuate the 3D in order to make it fun for you. And he also found out that through this, they by trying to avoid eye strain, past films were causing it, because he decided to put the convergence of your eyes not where the action was, but where something was an- innocuous was going on in the scene. And that was interesting at the, because he was complimented that magic journeys was very easy on the eyes and, and 3d wasn't really researched very well and in fact mit math were doing all this work on mathematical formulas about um 3d and and mit researchers later confirmed actually that he was right the 3d formulas were full of errors uh that people were using prior to create stuff so it's really interesting that you know he didn't do any of this math. He just kind of went on what he believed would bring 3D to the film uh, and th- into the eye and make it easy, which I thought was really, really interesting. Now, wh- um, Todd,
0: why
7: was 3D such? It seems like it's to me an, an Epcot-y thing. But I mean, I know we have it now, but like <laughs> yeah. it seems like if if there was a movie, it was going to be. It, 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 I'm just trying to like summarize this in my head because they didn't want to show something like a normal film. A lot of times they did like the circle vision. They did the 3d. Like, was this just because that was the only tricks they could really pull on a film or.
4: I, I, I think part of the answer, Todd might end up being, I'm sure you know, is the 3d prior to this was really bad. Yeah. And that's part of why Muppet vision still works today because that at the time, was the best 3D, 4D, that I had ever seen. Yeah. And that's only you know six years later and a lot of technology advances. But Magic Journeys, as I recall, was particularly well done when most 3D
5: movies were not well done at all. Oh, I was going to say, I'm trying to think in the time, sort of the time stream, where that fit in. Because... Well...
7: That's the it, thing, like, I didn't- all, all- there's not like a ton out there, like mainstream that was. just common. 3D, and there was a right, couple. But, but in the 70s,
4: and it had really fallen out of favor. It was a it was a 50s and 60s gimmick. The 70s, it was barely used, and mostly used, I think, in the horror genre. Correct. Um, yep. As like as a in horror B movies as a gimmick, you weren't really finding it. Like there wasn't 3D versions of Close Encounters and stuff like that that were. That were coming out. It just, it it didn't really, Jaws 3D in 1983, 84? That was 83, I think. They filmed that at SeaWorld in in, in Orlando. Um, And that was, I mean, that was hokey, but it was a better use of the effects than you was, because before you just had that red and green lens. Right you know, like, yeah, it's just, it it's just it weird right. to
7: me. They selected something that was known as gimmicky, hokey, and it wasn't really mainstream. Was it to plus the attraction? Is that the goal?
6: Well, I, th- I think it was. It was also Lerner trying to do something different. One of the quotes here he says is that he never agreed that 3D should be used to create the illusion of sight. And the reason is because your eye is over, always moving, right? So instead, you can't, you can't replicate that in film. So instead, 3D there is there just to create an illusion. So if you really take Magic Journeys apart, and when we talk about it here, the scenes that work is when it's creating the illusion, it's drawing the audience in, or, or scaring them in, in some of the scenes, uh, and it's not there to be hokey or just to set up a crazy scene where there's you know layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Uh, and if you really think about it, in watching Magic Journeys, there are specific points that he just used it for the illusion. And then that was it. There's plenty of scenes where it's really not that interesting, right? Right.
5: (laughs) It's just some flying
6: scenes that are not that great.
5: Yeah. So, so to to put a little, I will. I do want to bust like one myth about old 3D movies. I I think we have this perception that 3D movies were the blue lens and the red lens, and that's not true. Like when those movies were, there was that was part of the process. But by the 1960s, they were shooting full color. 3d movies hitch hitchcock was going to shoot dial m for murder or did shoot it in 3d but didn't release it in 3d um they they used the same similar setup with um with polarized lenses i I think the big difference was um because you were showing these movies in conventional theaters at that point nobody was doing two separate um film projectors side by side each with a high quality image on it they were using techniques like Um, There was one that used a a single 35 millimeter and they put one image on the top of the frame and one image on the bottom of the frame, which just squeezed, you know, a lot of detail out of it. Or or another one where they used uh, anamorphic lenses and basically combined the two images into one single frame of 35 by squishing it and then used an anamorphic lens on the other side to like widen it back out again. So the innovation was really, and, and because they were only, outfitting two theaters for this one at Epcot and one at Disneyland, you know, to run two synced 70 millimeter projectors side by side to get a really super high quality image that I think was kind of the key difference uh, for that time. And, and really this coming out in very early 1983, this, this was kind of at the forefront of sort of the second generation of, of 3d movies that was starting to hit.
6: And that's a perfect segue into the tech and I think we'll answer JT your original question of like why was this in Epcot. So let's talk about the technology like how complicated was this. So it was extremely complicated. It was composite photography, matting, superimposed computer animation. Some scenes in the film have more than 20 pieces of film overlaid on top of it to create just that that scene. Murray apparently had one in mind that had, would have 125 layers of film, but they talked them down off the ledge. <laughs> so it's like the Sergeant is, Pepper of
4: 3D
1: films. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I got a
7: vision here.
6: <laughs> yep. It was the first computer-generated 3D film to debut in any Disney park. It featured sharper imaging, and you you hit on this, Hal. 75-millimeter uh, film, dual 75-millimeter projectors. It was shown at 75 frames per second compared to the average oh, of 24 okay. So you've got three times the amount of film. Now think about that. From a shooting perspective, from an editing perspective, from a projection perspective, that is a lot of work. So this is not just about visual of, oh, wow, there's, you know, some kid's feet coming at me or, or the dandelions. This is about clear image. This is pre-digital projection, smooth motion, um, and super, super detail that you just would never see anywhere. So, uh, you know. So here's a couple more little different things about. They had a twin camera system, obviously. Uh, Steve Hines of WED and Kodak uh, put that together. It was built in Burbank. And then Disney actually replicated, it, built three more different rigs for all different kinds of shots. Um, Then uh, Kodak was really the one who pressed it to be shot on um, 65 or 75. What they call 70 it's really 65 millimeters and the whole width of the film is 70 millimeters um, but the initial plan was actually to use a camera rig that had developed for other films called the todd ao rig but it was not a, a uh, capable of achieving the type of 3d desired so that's why disney and steve hines built their own rig so um, one rig was just built for the flying sequences um, and uh, the other was designed um, with the ability to change 3d settings during a shot and it was using most of the scenes featuring the boys and the kids and the other actors so um the camera had the ability to shoot in slow motion and high speed so think about that that's that's also now you can film slow motion and high speed photography you got 75 frames per second this is not just and know just so everybody knows shooting in slow motion and shooting um in in high speed is not about just Slowing the film down or speeding it up after. This is about changing the f- speed of the film while you are filming. So this is a this is really a lot, this is so groundbreaking. No wonder this project took two years. <laughs> so um, there was a lot of CG. We're going to talk about the dandelions, the brass ring, the eye. Um, these were all the first times CG was introduced into a film. And um, here's another interesting thing: the entire film was made with no live sound. All dialogue and sounds were added in post, which it's interesting because
7: now that I watch, him am like,
6: oh, yeah, there's no need for it. There's, there's, it's all ambient and the children laughing in the background and stuff. So
7: Now, now my um, question, Todd, is after all of that you listed, did anybody know all this when they went to go see it? Because <laughs> I feel like that in itself should have been the pre-show showing a making right. of before. because how long was it like six minutes
6: 16 16, 16 and a half minutes. Minutes. 17
7: minutes yeah so you like you see all this you're like oh that was cool and then you're like, where's the yeah. pretzel stand after you just right, went right. through all that
6: well if you had gone to Epcot central and did the astutor computer review she would have told you that the soundtrack is on two inch tape and piped in from Epcot computer central so
7: yeah that just that's insane all those those facts and figures and now going back this is what we do to i, I this is what happens to me when I listen to you guys talk about this stuff is like now I wish I would have seen it for real, because you could have known all this in your head, but now, now we can't. Right.
6: Right. So a couple more things. Sonoma County was one of the filming locations and how and I were chatting about this before the, uh, before we record here. Um, those locations were used specifically for the children playing at the beach, running through the fields, walking around wooded paths. This came from a, um, newspaper article I found that said, Oh, you know, Murray Lerner and Disney will be here. Um, and that was the final phase of shooting. Um, so, I have a hunch and how I think you and I are kind of on the same thing here is that the kids probably didn't have to go far. It was probably shot on a soundstage somewhere. They took them up the Sonoma, did the outside scenes. The rest of it is, is all soundstage and, and all the, and now that we know that we're, you know, 20 layers of film, there's, there's so much post-processing in this. All right. So we're starting to fall behind in the process of making this film. Um, it's the cutting edge. It's behind schedule. They weren't sure what it was going to be ready on opening day and they needed a solution for that. Um, so, It was very ambitious, and apparently Murray was a perfectionist. Um, He ate up the film's entire original budget. (laughs) still a lot more to shoot. Uh, I had to do all the optical visual effects. So actually, uh, they shut production down until a rough cut of the film that was uh, edited by Randy Roberts. He became a supervising editor on Law & Order Special Victims Unit, which is interesting. Uh, And it was screened for, for Randy Bright and other Disney executives at the time. Um, and apparently Lerner was also known for not being a very decisive director. He wanted to keep trying different things and doing things over and Bright and others were demanding that he move things forward. So we have a little story coming up here in a second. So let me set the stage for this. One of the most often remembered 3d effects is when the kite comes up and the young boy is moving across the screen. It feels like it's like, you know, right there. Um, it's one of the first optical effects that was completed. And, um, it was actually completed by Eric Brevig, who went on to work at Industrial Light and & Magic and uh, got an Oscar for his work on Total Recall. Um, the shot was a big achievement, and uh, the schedule of Magic Journeys was very tight, as we talked about. And, um, However, there's something interesting that went on with the scene that turned out to be a little bit of a prank. And uh, we had a conversation with Mark Eads the other day, so we're going to
2: let him tell the story about the kite scene. We get our first optical of what is really one of the best scenes in the movie, and that's the kite. And it''s, it's a it's a complicated optical because they had to basically do it all mechanically on optical printers to make this kite, you know, come out and you're doing it times two screens and look and you know we're seeing it on a full 3D screen for the first time and we're, we were able to set it up as a loop so we could look at it over and over again. And it was truly magnificent. And it was basically the crew on magic journeys some of the guys from visual effects and it really looked great and matt murray etc so murray goes oh i gotta i gotta call randy bright you know he calls randy Bright. i gotta have him come over and look at this it's gonna blow their minds he called them and they said they could come over in about an hour and a half so i told the projectionist to leave it set up then unbeknownst to me at that point <laughs> everybody kind of got together and they decided to conspire something so they got some of the 3D glasses and they made one of them so they both had a right eye polarizer in them so if you're watching it with just the same polarizer you can't see any 3D so I'm back there they hadn't quite told me yet they're kind of snickering when they give they made sure Murray had the glasses and then all the other people get their glasses I hand them out and then um they start running the loop and you know Randy Bright and Marty Scar are like Wow, this is they're like blown away. And Murray starts immediately belly aching. Oh, I don't know what's wrong. Did you guys save, change something on the projectors? There's no 3D at all. The three D's gone. We're gonna have to rework this. Blah, 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 blah. Now, as he's belly aching, I think it was Eric came back and told me what had happened. And I said, oh, God, don't laugh because, you know, everybody's up there by Murray and they're turning around and snickering and they're looking at me and I'm going, you know, and they said, you're going to have to go get Randy and Marty and explain what happened. Great. You know, Murray goes, well, shut it down. I can't keep it going. So we shut it down and Randy and Marty are like, oh. and so I have to run after Randy and Marty and get them outside. I said, look. I'm here to tell you that the guys have played a practical joke on Murray. And they thought it was hilarious because they knew Murray was challenging. And so I said, can you come back in half an hour, just walk in. We're not going to change a thing, but we'll make sure Murray has real glasses. I came back in, started it up. Murray's got it. Oh, did you guys readjust the projectors and everything? Oh, yeah, Murray, we took care of it for you. That's the story of 3D as 2D. Practical joke on Murray Lerner, and we nobody, everybody swore an oath of secrecy, and he never found out.
6: All right, so we thank Mark for that story. Pulling a good one over Murray Lerner there. They decide with Journey into Imagination not right open the park. Um, This is a little sidebar here. They decide to create a preview film for Magic Journeys. Hosted by JT, who do you think would host a preview film for Magic Journeys? And it's not the other MJ, because every time we typed MJ into Slack... JT thought we were doing Captain Nia with Michael Jackson. This is a this is the MJ that preceded the
7: MJ. Uh Bob Hope, he did the pre-show. Good guess. <laughs> no. Excellent yeah, guess.
6: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was none other than Ron Schneider as dreamfinder actually. So, they decided that can't have journey to imagination, so we'll make a film. Well, the film's running late, so why don't we make a film about the film and about the attraction to play if we can't have the film and the attraction ready. Um, so we're gonna let Ron um tell us here in a second, but it was a little two minute film that featured Dreamfinder running through backstage and falling down and running through all the attractions and there's some really neat footage in it from behind the scenes of some attractions I've never seen before. Um so it was it was very, very unique. And uh so it was, it was called Dreamfinder Run. So let's hear Ron here uh will tell us a little about about Dreamfinder Run.
0: Um yeah, I about two weeks before I was supposed to fly to Florida and move to Florida in September, um, I get a call early uh, one morning, Saturday morning, I think it was, and they say, Ron, we need you in Florida. I said, I know, I'll be there in two weeks. They said, no, we need you there this afternoon. Um, And what happened was, uh, it was in the contract with Kodak that the pavilion was supposed to be open or have something running in it on October 1st, it had to have something. They knew the ride wasn't gonna be anywhere near ready. They weren't sure about the image works, and Murray Lerner, director of uh, Magic Journeys, um, was not uh, sure that he'd have the film ready. They had to have something in the building. So they were gonna shoot a preview video with Dreamfinder and Figment talking about the ride, and they needed to shoot uh, me the clip that you saw Earlier this evening, of Dreamfinder with the too long beard walking through the rainbow corridor. That was the very first time I was ever in the costume. And um, they flew me down to Florida that day. I went and we did that shot. And, um, and then the next day, I was back in Los Angeles. We spent three days at Wed uh, Tahunga. Shooting uh, a video, a, w- a really strange video, directed by Michael Jitlov. Uh, look him up, J A G I T T L O V. And um, I was a big fan uh, of his. And again, uh, he spent the whole three days, uh, me running around, um, uh, wed uh, with all these people, all these the, the, the people who actually did their shows. They un- under cranked the um, f- camera, and I ran. Everywhere, very, very fast. And everyone around me was moving. It looked like they were moving in regular time, but I was zip, 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 zip. zip. Yeah, it's a very interesting glimpse at what was going on uh, at WED. Uh, a couple of weeks after we completed it, I got an invitation to a screening at uh, Disney Studios, and I went, and they had all the people who'd worked on it. And I saw the thing, and... I didn't like it at all. The beard was all wrong, and I was overplaying it, and uh, I, went to my, I just went to Mike Jiv Love afterward and said, that was, thank you very much. Um, and that, cl- that film's been used a thousand times in different promotions. If you saw the opening special with Danny Kaye and me and Drew Barrymore, uh, that's the clips that they show while, while I'm talking. Um, but just like the uh, interview with Brian Gumble on opening day on the Today Show, I don't watch it a lot.
6: All right, so thanks to Ron for that. That was actually um audio taken from our Retro Magic event in 2019 where he told us about Dreamfinder run. So So can you guys imagine that if if the film Magic Journeys didn't make it, the attraction wasn't ready, this was going to be the entire thing that was open at Journey into Imagination on the first day. It would have been a 2-minute film of Dreamfinder, like every 2 minutes cycling, that and some jumping fountains. That's all. You-
4: <laughs> well, but if you were, you know, Used to the Magic Kingdom, uh, and if you were a Disney Parks person, that's what you were used to. That yeah. whole side of Future World, you had one ride, which was the mm-hmm. land boat ride. <laughs> Listen to the land at that time, because uh, you had the Kitchen Cabaret stage show and this film and the Image Works, which was a, you know, a playground. There was nothing else yeah. over there, uh, right? It was open. So, this is
3: just a delay. That's all it is. All major theme parks had delays when they opened Disneyland in 1956. Nothing worked. Nothing. Yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists.
7: Hey, um, wait. So this now it, this was in the theater where Captain EO was. Yes. Yeah, we're gonna oh, talk okay. about the theater in a little bit. Yep, okay.
6: Yep, that's where it was. So. All right. So it is now late September 1982. We've got another great story here from Mark. The film has been completed. The Technicolor prints are ready. The only problem is they're in California and they're due to be played the next night at 9 p.m. And you couldn't so,
4: download the film back then. Exactly. No internet. No
6: digital <laughs> no digital download. So how did they do it? So let's hear Mark tell us the secret of how they got uh, Magic Journeys ready to roll in less than 24 hours.
2: I'd never traveled on business before. Now I'd been to Florida once way back in 74, went again in 75, and then my wife and I honeymooned there in 77. So Magic Journeys was, as I indicated, the most harrowing film and they really wanted it. Now we actually weren't really done with it, so some of the visual effects were kind of hurried up a little bit just to get the thing done. And negative was cut. And here we were six days out from the opening of Epcot. We were getting in an answer print on the proper film stock, the Mylar stock, because that's the whole thing that could run through the projectors. And you know, by then all the web people, they're in Florida. It's basically, it's got to get there. So I, I, I had arranged for a shipment, I thought, and the film came in, we set up, and we're sitting out there and it's all set up before it gets to run bob turns to me and says mark if this film looks good you're getting on a plane tonight with it to get it there so it'll run tomorrow night for the all the executives from all the sponsors in the walt disney company i am yes donna who's his secretary is already making the travel arrangements okay so we look at the film it looks great okay go see donna she's got she's got two first class tickets for you and i go two yes we want you to hand carry the film they won't fit the overhead compartments, so you're going to have to put it in the seat next to you. Great. Now, I'd never been on a business trip before, so I didn't know what to expect. My immediate supervisor is explaining to me how you get the rental car, where you get it. I knew how to get out to Walt Disney World. I knew I knew where you got uh, a parking pass, and uh, then you get the parking pass, and he said, you go in this way, and he gave me directions, and the, the projection head was in the China Pavilion. They had an office up there. I have to hand carry these? Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, you, the, you you fly to Atlanta and you have to change planes to the one to Orlando. There's no non-stops. I got to carry this? These things aren't light. I mean, they're like, you know, the width of my body plus a little bit. 70 millimeter film is, mm, well, 70 millimeter plus sprockets. And, you know, it's about 18 minutes long. One can's heavy. Imagine having to carry two pit cans. 70 millimeter that big doesn't have the kind of carry things that you would have for 35 millimeter okay i call my wife say honey i'm getting on a plane tonight uh pack my stuff i'm going out of lax the flight leaves at like 10 and she's looking at these film cans well you want to put those in the suitcase no i can't i have to check the baggage i have to carry these really and i even had a handwritten note from bob jabot signed on disney letterhead to show to the flight people etc that you know this is what this is i had to i had to open. i didn't want to but i i had actually a roll of tape with me so i could retape it in case i had to it was label open it up in case they want to see it now this is way before tsa but you know Here's this guy carrying what essentially looks like two landmines. I get to the airport. My wife walked. You know, we had our newborn, our oldest kid. He was born in July. He's with me. She. Back then, you could walk all the way out to the gate. So they walk out with me. Thank God, because I had to check my bag, and I'm still carrying this stuff. Though what she, what we did to get me to the gate was we had a little stroller for the little ones. So. He was being real good so she carried him and we put the film in the stroller <laughs> pushed it out to the gate it's the only time i could do that check in there you know and i've got this and i show the flight attendant she says okay leave it here on the desk and she looked at it so it was there on the desk and i i don't want to walk way too far so we stay right there until i can board the flight first class gets boarded first you know along with any babies so you know as soon as i could be boarded Okay, I go up there, and when you're carrying that, I'm going to show you, but sorry if I have to back away. This film, I figure it's a lot bigger than this. I'm walking like a duck the jetway and into into the airplane, uh, which was not a wide body because they didn't do the wide bodies as much back then. Um, I had a boarding pass for me, and I had a boarding pass for the Right next to me, which the the flight attendants thought was funny as hell. And, of course, we had to strap them in. So they got some kind of extra strap thing just to make sure they wouldn't go anywhere, you
1: know. (laughs) And
2: and I fly, you know, I'm like... Taking the red eye, I had experienced that once and knew it was going to be hard to sleep. Would you like a beverage before we take off? Sure. What do you got? Oh, (laughs) I think I got myself a a, a screwdriver. I was a little bit of a neophyte on drinking back then. I had a couple of those before we even pushed back. And then, you know, we push back, we take off. I don't sleep. You know, I'm like tense, nervous. This thing has to run at 9 p.m. the next night, right? And so we get to Atlanta okay, you know, the luggage I have to assume is going to change planes okay, walk out carrying these two cans of film with the letter in my pocket from Bob Jabot. Atlanta's not an easy airport to walk through when you're carrying something big like that. And it's not (laughs) as busy at that time in the morning when you land because it was like 4 a.m. Eastern time or something like that. I don't remember. And of course, we're at one end of this building. Thank God I didn't have to go to another building. And the plane <laughs> I'm getting on is at the other end of this building. I get there and we got about 30 minutes before boarding. I go through the same rigmarole with the flight attendant. You know, she looks in. Yep. Okay. I retape it. She said, you want to leave it here? Yes. But I've got to keep an eye on it. Yes, I understand. Do the same thing. I have to go and it's a narrower plane and I have to get on board. I get on board first. I'm in first class. We do the whole thing with it buckled in and all of this take off for orlando get there at like six something Mm -hmm. and of course then it's get off the plane and i'm lugging my way through this brand new orlando airport blah blah (laughs) blah get on a people mover people were looking at me Mm -hmm. and i did not sleep get get to the preview center get my parking pass i get out to epcot and the wed offices were in trailers behind the china pavilion i get there and i oh you're here yeah can somebody call Tom Joe's React and let him know I'm here? We will. His office, yeah, I know where it is, but I don't know how to get there. Well, bring the film. Come with us. We'll show you. And they point to the door. Tom comes down, opens it, and it's like, nope, nope, don't go anywhere, Mark. Get back in your car. What? yeah Go. So he goes with me. We drive, and you have, you know, you couldn't drive across because they're pouring cement all over the place. There was concrete pours going on every day up to and including September 30th. Um, Drive all the way around to the back of the imagination pavilion, carried it in, and then Tom goes, What is the exact length of the film? Uh I don't know, with our weird trade, weird, you know, weird leader and all that. I, I never had a chance to measure it. Well, guess what you get to do now? Then the first thing we do is we get one of them out and we have to very, you know, I'm wearing gloves, we don't and we have to measure the length of it from point to point because the film runs in loop cabinets. Now this is about 8 a.m. that I get there and I start measuring and we measure it. And of course, they had a rough idea of how long it was, but they had to reconfigure the loop cabinet to the precise length with the dummy stock they had in there. Okay, so they start working on that. Don't go anywhere. We're going to run a test show as soon as we get it pulled in. How long is it going to take? About an hour and a half. Can, can I go get something to eat? No, you're not allowed to leave. I think they were joshing with me, but I was whatever. And I just kind of sit and watch them do their thing. Then they get the film pulled in and they could only pull one in at a time. You know, they, well, they started one and then they got the other one set up and started it, but they have to watch it because they don't want it to run out. They need to splice it and all that. They got it spliced and apparently they had a the program because all, you know, all of, disney stuff in the parks is automated so there's software that runs it okay we're ready to run a show mark can you come down to the theater with us why you're the only one who knows what sound sync is on this film okay go down into the theater they push a start button lights didn't go out at the right place doors were staying open The it was just if everything could go wrong the first time it did So the film's in sync with each other, but not with the audio. Now, the magic journey is sound. It's really hard to tell how out of sync it is because there's not a lot of what you would call hard sync points. Basically, the only one you really have is when the witch goes that came around and boy, you could tell it was out. And Mark, could you tell much? I don't have a pocket watch. I don't I mean, I don't have a stopwatch or anything. they said well how much do you think oh i said it was at least five and a half seconds off and you got all this other stuff going on oh yeah because the programmer was was in there making notes etc we're gonna have to fix it okay how long is that gonna take well get the programmer a minute he does some calculations for about 30 minutes okay i'm gonna have to burn about 24 EPROMs for that okay how long does that take well 24 EPROMs. we can do eight at a time it takes a little about an hour per one per set of eight you know you're kidding three hours yeah okay so they get to work on it i'm like i'm wired right even though i've been up all night i've had nothing to eat other than what i got on the flight down which wasn't much because i just was trying to you know as best i could and when you look like you're trying to sleep they don't bother you so I said well i'm supposed to meet rick rockchild over at the energy pavilion in about an hour and a half and where do i get food and they told me it was over uh the back of the odyssey restaurant was the employee cafeteria over there okay i'm i'll come back I don't have a radio and they said well you better be back because you don't have a radio and you're it what's that mean if it doesn't run by 9 p.m tonight you're going to be the designated person <gasps> why me so I leave the pavilion, and I just, you know, I'm kind of walking slow because it's like, this is my first time at Epcot, right? It's looking at all the cement trucks and all the gardening that's still being laid. And I get it. I walk through part of Communicore, um, and then I'm walking around the, the big fountain there in the middle, right? And as I'm walking, as I get around to the other side, I'm going to then go to the energy pavilion, Right and who's walking towards me randy bright and ron miller and i just kind of walk by them and they walk by me and they nod i don't think i go more than four steps when i hear these two bass voices go mark Eads. i turn around and there's randy bright and ron miller pointing at me like death they in unison you know they conspired it was kind of a practical joke i guess and they go magic journeys will run at 9 p.m tonight And I kind of go, well, you know, having a few technical magic journeys will run at 9 p.m. tonight. (laughs) Okay, yeah, it will. They keep going. I just sit there. Should I go on to it? Nope, to hell with it. I won't even get food. I go right back to the pavilion. I tell Tom and a couple others what had happened. Yeah, this is a big, and they tell me, Tom Joe's react tells me, this is a big deal, Mark. All these executives, corporate presidents, chairmen of the board, a bunch of vps etc are going to be here not just from kodak but from every single sponsor of epcot okay so i hang out not much you can do when they're reprogramming other than suck your thumb so they get it done they plug in the e we run a test show again this is about i want to say around 2:30 in the afternoon by the time they get all this done of course the film is still out of sync with the audio but there were a couple of us really watching it, trying to get it closer. It was about two and a half seconds out uh, still, and there were still some problems with some doors and a couple of lights were not right, etc. Programmers are making their little note uh, and they go back to work. How much? How long this time? Give me a few minutes, okay? And I told them how much the film was off, and okay, it's going to be another two hours. You know, I'm pacing. I, Go outside a little bit to get some air. I still haven't had any food. So it gets to be, oh gosh, 7 o'clock. They run a show again. Everything was really close. Of course, the film was still out of sync. Okay, real quick fixes. They only had to burn four EEPROMs. It's going to take an hour. Great. Quarter eight, run a test show. Everything's working fine. The film's a little out of sync. Okay, we don't want to burn another EEPROM. It takes too long well you should okay they burned one more they did one more tent film still out of sync it's 8:15, and i said it's this much out and i go can we just move the projector i think it's about four frames and then run and then resync it and run a test show yeah that's probably easier let's do that they run a test show still a couple frames out couple more frames sync it run a test show it's quarter to nine perfect on in sync, everything's working and of course the film has to roll around which takes some time and it was just it had just finished and damned if all those executives didn't walk into the pre-show space there right at nine o'clock of course they're guided by tour guides etc cetera, etc cetera. so we start the show so they can see Kodak's pre-show it runs it's great everybody comes in I'm like with my eyes because I'm trying to just not fall asleep I'm not but I'm so wired the show runs and blew everybody away they're all like reaching for the kite and all this other stuff it ends gets you know standing ovation etc I'm like (laughs) (laughs) I I go outside and they all come out and Randy spots me and goes Mark you pulled it off shakes my hand look if you go over to here I think it was at American Adventure. There there's a party you can go to, you know, I'll tell them you can let Randy, I haven't had any sleep or food. Well we got I just I haven't even checked into my hotel room yet. Okay, well okay, I'll I'll be back tomorrow. Yeah. We want you to go look at all the films, see what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Have your wife come down. Okay. So I you know, I hadn't even thought about asking about permission for that because I had to get the film there. I went over to the contemporary and they had held the room, nice room in the the old north wing. Right where it makes it turn so it's a huge room it's not a suite it's just one it's a one of the biggest rooms and um i'm hungry as hell the only place open at that time of night i guess other than a bar which i wasn't as familiar with back then i it was the snack bar in the arcade right there at the north end of the <laughs> main building yeah. I, go there. I managed they're like almost ready to shut down you know <laughs> it's almost 11 and they were going to shut down at 11. i got some cheap ass sandwich and some chips and a drink i go back to my room eat them and i i mean i crashed i didn't get up till about ten thirty the next morning <laughs> so that's the saga of the first class trip of the magic journeys 3d film print all
6: right so quite a story there we did ask mark uh if he, if he perhaps uh, ate the the meal for the second film for the film next to him but he doesn't recall he thinks he just tried but to the sleep. film
4: does still have uh 2500 frequent
7: flyer miles that it hasn't used yet <laughs> <laughs> that's
4: right so,
6: looking to cash those in anytime, anytime. what's
7: crazy <laughs> is he carried the the 70 millimeter ones that's, yeah and you were just talking about the size and the frame rate and all that and that's that had to be some pretty large canisters
6: it, it totally had to be um you know I'm almost on a look up here what is the weight of 7 millimeter film and then the length that it would have been um I'm surprised I mean, you
7: don't have this figure already like you got <laughs> what was it 70 frames per second and the Yeah right, right so you got to yeah we would have to do a little bit and of How a many seconds was there. it do the math
4: For the benefit of people at home he did pantomime for us the the <laughs> physical look true. of carrying those things so we have a a general idea of what it looked like
7: and then yep. the uh, the early 80s baby stroller holding them as well yes. through the airport, right
6: All righty, well let's talk a little bit about the music and get into the pre-show. So um, the, the music was done none other by, gentlemen, the Sherman Brothers. Who else would you get to write some catchy tunes? And they made two songs. Uh, one was Magic Journey," yes. And the other one was Making Memories, which played here in the pre-show. So the pre-show area, like we've all gotten to used to over the years, is a slanted floor. You know, do not sit, um, even though everybody tries to sit. And as soon as the uh, slideshow started. But uh, it was a slideshow with eight projectors called Making Memories. And um, the song, very, very catchy tune. Um, it's really interesting if you ever listen to the lyrics and then tie it to the actual show, you'll find that the lyrics progress in time and they talk about posing and then they go to ad hoc daily life and personal events. Um, and also, too, what they did is in the pre-show, the slides started with early photos, progressed, the quality got better, black and white, early color, and modern photos. But there is an interesting line at the end. How do you remember what's the very last line? Look at the birdie. That, that's right. Right. Does anybody know why that was thrown in? Um, was there a photo element to the? There, there is. It's a really interesting photo element to this. So, um, so apparently there was a gentleman by the name of C. W. Davis, and he had been training a live canary to sing on at, at his direction to relax a subject who for photography would have to remain still and in a fixed position for a long time while the camera took the the photo. So apparently entrepreneurs kind of got wind of this and they made this brass mechanical bird that was operated pneumatically with a bulb. And they would say, you know, look at the birdie, focus on the birdie, whatever, when taking photography. And there are these really kind of ornate brass birds. And when you squeezed it, it would kind of just tilt back and forth a little bit. Um. So it's it, it, that's where the look at the birdie comes from. So it was to get everybody's attention, but actually goes further back to a live bird. <laughs> so I I think we need to have some live birds at our next event for all of our fo- photos. In you a know, photo booth, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a photo booth. Look at the live birds. Bum, you know. Bum.
4: So I I found that really interesting. I, I've now yeah, fa- just- I've now found one of the brass birds, and I'm are they cool? A photo They're really of it. Neat yeah. looking. I mean, I always knew what the expression was, and like a a photographer would like mime a, a bird with their hand look at, yeah look, look yeah. at the birdie you know yeah uh
6: but so i i just found that fascinating it's just so cool that some stuff comes out like that when you
5: that's funny they did use a lot of like didn't they say hold your breath and say cheese is one of the lines too so they used a lot of the like photography things that were yeah yeah i love that pre-show that was good it's a very catchy tune it is it is yeah and uh it, it, the i mean it was funny to turn around and look at all the slides yeah. Going off, like if you ever yeah. if you ever did manage to catch this when it was running, until like if you turned around, there was a booth behind you, uh, behind a, there was like kind of a low wall that would separate you from this, so that way you couldn't stand so close to get in, in front of the projectors, but you could literally see just this these banks of um, these slide projectors, which, which were
4: <laughs> which I'm sure were Kodak carousels. Oh, I'm absolutely. sure they were carousels. Yeah. You could see it yeah. since
5: that was the sponsor. And uh, oh, my gosh. But yeah, but it's,
4: was- it's one of the few times you can lay a ragtime style tune on me and I won't cringe because <laughs> <laughs> I generally dislike ragtime music. But I, I enjoy that making memories. Yeah.
6: And, and now think about it, guys. Like this is 1982, right? We're still in the era of of film. It's really a commercial. Go out, buy a camera, buy a film, snap pictures while you're oh, here. 100%. You, know? yeah. you can buy them there. Yeah, it was a Kodak commercial. Is really what it was. Um, it, was it was really neat. They were getting so,
4: their thirty million worth.
5: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were. I mean, and that the amazing thing is like that continued forward. It, like, yeah, as it got into Captain EO and then Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, it was still a slideshow yeah. <laughs> like way up into the nineteen nineties, which is mind-boggling. Now, true or false, the pre-show
6: included a shot of Dreamfinder and Figment.
5: Yes. You are correct. How Very in long. one of the still photos, there was I think a drawing of them. I don't think it was a photo. I'm trying to remember now.
6: Yeah, I just have fear that it that one of the images had Dreamfinder. It did. I think there, it so. was. Uh,
5: I think yeah. it was. I think it was a drawing of them. If I'm okay, guys. I, ever I know there's a few people who have seen this show that can write in. Erica Dade, yep. I'm looking at you. <laughs> I think she's she's a big fan too. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
6: So that was about eight minutes or so you would spend that, in there. That's so a slide that, that's,
4: set, by the way. I'd love to get my hands on. Oh, man.
6: Yeah, and you know what? There's really no footage of it at all. There's a there's couple of the ones that replaced it, yeah. with, you know, True Colors. Uh, Martin's vid has some of it, um, but it's 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 very green. It's really hard to see. It's really kind of a poor. Hopefully, someday. But, yeah, Brian, keep your eyes out for that. Yeah. It'll be great. We'll recreate. We'll get, get right eight slides that. together. We'll Yeah, we'll get it all together. All right. So the theater, we are going through the pre-show. Like I said, that's about eight minutes, so it was perfectly timed to let eight you know eight minutes of people filling it you run it for eight minutes you've got your 16 minutes covered and you move into the theater um the theater was uh, 592 seats a 54 foot wide screen so we're going to now get into the film and um we have to cue our opening music All right, so we're going to walk through the film here. Now, gentlemen, I, I sent you earlier today um, a tripod copy of it, which I think is decent for watching it. I think it gives the image of the film. Ver- Probably one of the best copies out there, how too, I got to say. So we'll make sure our listeners see that. Um, so our opening shot, we've got five children, two boys and three girls walk through a grove of flowering trees. And they, they comment, it looks like snowflakes. It's a beautiful morning. Uh, let's go to the beach, and my favorite, ow, that hurts, <laughs> as they bump into each other. So again,
5: all this dialogue was added later. So I um, will tell you, when that shot, when the movie opened with yeah. that crane shot down through the through the trees, through the trees people yeah. gasped yeah. in the movie theater. Um, because, I mean, it's, if you can pick, for those of you who haven't seen it, if you can picture, like, trees on two sides with, like, one of those, you know, parallel infinity things where it looks like it's like greenery kind of making a road down the center. So there's flowers real close up to the camera. There's the trees like going all the way off to the background. I mean, it's was made for this shot was made for 3D, which means that if you watch it in 2D, it looks just kind of boring. Yeah, it's it's not nearly <laughs> as
6: exciting. So the kids race through a field of flowers. Uh, the blonde boy, who's really turns out to be the kind of the main character, we see him a lot. Uh, and he's the focus of this. Um, one of the kids suggests that they sit down. They look up at the clouds and they call out what they see. You know, I see a clown. I see this, and that really starts to foreshadow what the audience is going to see later in the film. Right. And this reminds me of like, have you ever had a day where like you go to the grocery store and you're picking up broccoli, and then you have like a you know a dream about picking up broccoli the next day? This is exactly <laughs> what it's doing here, right? It's foreshadowing it's like the dream. What
5: an amazing coincidence! <laughs> yes. <laughs>
6: So it's the sea it's seeding it. So um, and with that, the scene the theme song for the film begins to play.
1: Just annoying every day we all once you're own.
6: Um, so our main child, uh, picks up a dandelion and blows it, and here's one of the first key CG effects, right? The seeds fly out all in front of you, and this now what we would call kind of, what do you say? How that the eye? It's just not perfect, right? It's an old, it's a CGI, and it's 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 young in its CG years. Right? Yeah, it's, it's not, not perfect.
5: I mean, it's very advanced for the time, Nineteen eighty oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about the state of computer graphics in 1982. It's an extremely impressive shot. Yeah, but yep. next to today, oh, it's it's not. Yeah, yeah, Compa- it pales in comparison. I would say it is, you know, similar in quality to what we saw from Pixar in nineteen ninety four with Toy Story. Right. You know. Um, yep.
6: And I, even I, even even maybe even a little cruder than that too. Maybe more like tin toy or even pre tin toy.
5: You know, yeah. Although so. the shading is, you know, the shading is very smooth. Mm. um through the whole thing you know i think that's the the thing that kind of gives it away as computer right now is like the there's no texture to the skin like the eye is is textured with the you know the iris and the in but you know the the skin itself is like you know it's kind of fong shaded rather than you know anything uh (laughs) fancier than that right right still i mean something an incredible thing to pull off at the time
7: yeah compared to to tron Tron came out in 82. Anything <laughs> any th- you know that same Different era. Different type
5: of use I think. Well, yeah. here's some the CG. thing, like Tron didn't attempt to do shading. Really. Mm. I mean, a little bit on the on the um No, I take that back. They did they did do some shading on the cha- on the tanks and on the light cycles and stuff. I'd say slightly better. Slightly better than Tron probably. Mm. Um but the thing to keep in mind is as Mark told us in the interview is, you know, he was working he had access to like the best computer graphics people in the country at that point with his involvement with Seagraph, which was as kind of like the special interest group for people that were into computer graphics at that time. And that, that group still exists. So, you know, um, it was a very tight knit community. Um, We talked about um, how Seagraph really helped the, um, the DNA sequence in, uh, in horizons and, and how those people were involved. And so, you know, you, there were a handful of people in the United States that were doing this kind of level of, of work at that time. And, you know, Mark was in contact with all of them. So he could kind of pick and choose, you know, who who could do this.
4: Yeah. And, the, the, the,
6: you know, the results were great. So we, we get into a computerized star field after the eyes. And um, I'm not going to admit, it gets a little trippy here with the music and the kaleidoscope and the zoom in and, and the that zoom part out. is
5: very Tron, actually. It's like, yeah, it is. It's it is because it's a little bit of grids. Yeah, of the move in the, yeah. into the um, into the computer when it yep. is sucked in. Exactly. Just a little more organic.
6: And this is probably the next whoa moment, right? The title sequence where the Magic Journey title rolls out over the audience in front of you. this is interesting it was the longest computer animated shot ever done Um, it took seven straight days of 24 hour rendering for the shot and i read apparently in the sherman's a brother's book. They claim that it cost half a million dollars back in 1981. Wow. So take that for what it's worth, but 7 uh, entire week to render
5: what? 10 seconds, 12 seconds, something like that. As a person who studied computer graphics in college, I'm going to try to put on my like thinking cap of how this was accomplished. So when the letters come out, they're solid. They kind of mm-hmm. go off screen in an arc and when they come back in front of you, they're transparent. So you can see the text continue to come out. So I'm gonna guess they did the computer version of a Texas switch there, where they had the solid stuff going off screen. It was replaced by a, by a transparent model as it came on screen, and oh, then right. as it comes off screen and goes back on the screen again, it's replaced by the solid version because you didn't have the kind of control that you no. have today over being able to say like oh i want to take this at this point and change it into like this thing is things were very very crude now,
7: that, yeah. that, now answer yeah. answer me this from the uh, the the idiot's perspective here if they're rendering out a computer back then how did they get it to the the film like so, what did they do <laughs> there <that's laughs> was print a, type system, yeah, so right? there was a special
5: machine uh, that would it was basically a little a tiny you know as high of a density television uh set as you could and then there was a camera pointed at that and in this case it was probably shot i don't know if this was shot in 70 or 35 or how they did it but we had a we had a similar setup in college so picture a very high resolution screen Um, i think the best ones that you could get at the time were 4k 2k was also common and then you had an actual 35 millimeter camera sitting on top of that. And that was computer controlled and it would paint up one frame, however long it took to do that. Cause there were no still stores then. So it would live render the entire image when it was ready, it would signal to the camera. Okay. Take the picture. It would take one frame adv- advance to the next one and start painting the next frame up. And it would wow. just go through that process Over and over again until you shot every scene. So it's almost like doing stop motion on a television camera or on a, on a taking stop motion pictures of a
7: TV screen. So I thought you're going to say they like bootlegged it, you know, they filmed the (laughs) computer screen with, but that's, it's interesting. Like my brain thinks like, okay, you make it digital. Now it stays digital. It's like they had to add a step after this. What was it? A week of rendering and then convert it to a film. Yeah, there was yeah, I mean that
5: that I think that rendering time he's talking about probably once you got out of the test phase, that would have been they would have rendered it and shot it. And I don't think they would have done it twice if they could have helped.
6: <laughs> yeah, probably that all the test phase was probably a wireframe and yeah, just getting in it to test yeah you pr- they and-
5: probably did a couple of short tests and then after yep. that they just you know you cross your fingers and let it go and you see what you got when it's done and then you send it and- out for processing and then you wait yep. <laughs> and you wait and it's <laughs> it can't see it it's for another why week why you saw a lot of you know,
4: late 70s early even to mid 80s films where they substituted or tried to fool you with animation hand animation instead of computer graphics animation that looked like computer graphics, right? right. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, Monty Python's, the meaning of life and in, in the middle of Eric idols, um, um, which uh, the, 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 the kidney donation song, uh, the universe song. And they go through this sequence that looks all computer
5: generated, but there's no way that it's, <laughs> that
4: it's computer generated because it's like two minutes long.
5: Yeah, there's a great story about uh, making the movie Escape from New York. Oh, Kurt yeah, Russell with Kurt film. Russell, yeah. So there's a scene in it where they do this computer-generated fly-through of, like, how he's going to go land on, um, on the building. And what they ended up doing is they had shot miniatures of their New York City. And then um, they realized there was no way they could actually afford to have it com- computer done. So they painted the city model black. And then put tape like white tape on all of the buildings to create outline buildings and then outlines of on the buildings. And then they just shot that uh, using traditional film and then did some coloring afterwards. That's crazy. And it worked. That's crazy. Great. Yeah.
6: So our next scene here, the kids are have finally made it to the beach that was suggested. Um, we've got seagulls flying overhead and um, a couple of the goals drift towards the screen. I, you know, I guess if this was a slapstick comedy, one of the goals would have like pooped on the audience, <laughs> right? That would have been the, <laughs> um, but one of the goals becomes that kite. So this is the famous kite scene uh, and then also the kite was featured in the poster, right? When it played at the Magic Kingdom yes, later it on, was. which we'll talk about. That was the big thing, which is an odd, Oh, there's not a, well there's other things that could be the pinnacle moment in this film, but there's a lot of them that you probably wouldn't choose, which we'll talk about as you'll you'll get the idea later on. Um, And this is the kite scene we were talking about earlier. So the kite then blends into the sky and then turns into a lionfish underwater. Uh, The blonde boy comes towards the screen, flying as this water then turns back into the sky and he's got his You know, he's of course he's flying with his arms outstretched because if you can fly, you you need lift with your wings out. I guess that's the only possible way if we are humans we can fly. Um, And he starts to fly over snowy mountains and waters and outcrops. And um, the shots vary from head on looking at the kid and then to one of the other famous shots is looking at his feet where his sneakers and legs are sticking out into the audience. Um, and a lot of the shots are very early reminiscence of Soren, Like if you ta- when you take the kid away from in some of the scenes, and how you did some digging, you, you found out where some of these sh- scenes were shot.
5: Right? There's a scene that looks like um, there's some salt outcroppings coming out of, the, mm-hmm. out of the ground, and my guess based on proximity is that that was shot at Mono Lake in California. Magic. a little bit so much like Salt Lake City where they they have they have a Salt Lake there and you get these strange formations that occur when the, when the water uh, goes away so yeah I think logistically that's probably a, a likely spot for that one to happen
6: cool so now um, we transition a little bit wait can and... I do I
5: do have to say one thing here though Yeah. so when that bird came up yeah It's funny that you talked about how he really wanted to see the audience kind of interact with this stuff. I mean, yeah, this is the point in the film where like everyone from the age of four to 94 would reach (laughs) into the air and try to grab the bird because they could not fathom that what they were seeing was a 3D projected image.
6: And that's that's a nod to the seventy five frames for frames per second, right? The the seventy millimeter reality, it just brought it that much closer to
5: to you, it, right? And th- there, you know, there were a couple of things, but that f- being the first kind of like real heavy duty beauty shot, and it just sits yeah. there in front of your face for like <laughs> five and six seconds, like it was amazing. You would look out on the audience, and you would see people just laughing and that was it that was a real high point for that thing and that that just blew people's minds
6: so the scene changes and now he's kind of like this is like a fabio scene right he's all of a sudden riding this beautiful white horse galloping down He's riding it bareback, and he's riding. This kid's can ride a horse. That's, I mean, he, this had to be in the in the job description. We need a kid who can ride a horse at a pretty good clip because he's moving. He's definitely moving. This is the net. This next part here, I think, is probably one of the great transitions in the film. The horse kind of gets up on its hind legs and does this noise, and his legs are, you know, going towards out towards the audience, and then all of a sudden, it fades. Into looking up at a merry-go-round horse going up and down, and the the, the legs are almost exact position as it fades in. and out. I I thought that was a really really cool transition. So now all the kids are back with our main main character here, and um, all of a sudden we see this spinning brass ring that's hovering. Right out in front of the o- audience. And look, we're, just what Howe said earlier about the, the bird, you're all reaching out for this ring because it's amazing. And that was definitely computer animated. Do you guys know the the history of what the brass ring? I, I found always this really interesting that they put something so old-timey
4: into a, a, a relatively modern film. Our, our- one pier in Ocean City still has it, and of course, Kenobel still has it. Yeah, it still has it. Yeah.
6: Okay, I've never, I've never been where we. I mean, because Disney, I'm sure the one at Olympic Park used to have it. They never have, they never have it.
5: So I, I can tell you, I had no freaking idea what that was. I didn't either.
6: <laughs> when I, I didn't saw either. the Movie. So maybe it's depends on where you live. If you live near the cool parks, like Brian does, um, you get the brass ring. So the idea was that there was this um, kind of a little ramp that these um, rings were lined up in and only most of them were iron and every now and then one or two were per ride were made of brass so if you would stretch your arm out and try to put your finger out and catch this ring that was sitting at the end of this little ramp and if you got a brass ring you could use it for a free ride on the merry-go-round um and this really goes back to the, the late 18, you know, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties into the early nineteen twenties when this was, was popular. So
7: they have uh, that at our zoos. Uh so you, you have a brass around. ring too? Well it's like a ring that's just hanging there. Like I think it's oh. symbolic and then whichever if you stop the ride at the end and you land there, yeah. you get a free okay. ride.
6: So if you spin it really hard and see
7: what you land on, yeah, it's that's like
5: Oh interesting. So yours actually is suspended like the one
7: it's hanging there like a sign. It's just like a ring. And it's like if your animal ends up being the one that when the ride stops being huh. almost like roulette, oh. you know, it's like, oh, you get the ride this time next to one.
6: Because the old style one is that they're in a dispenser, right? And they kind of yeah. roll down this dispenser. You put your finger through, you grab it, and the next one would roll down for the next person to take. So
5: What a strange tradition.
6: Yeah, I I should have looked up where it really came from. But, it, I mean, it was probably kind of a ploy to get more people to ride. You know, you're going to give one free ride per ride. That's load up the merry-go-round make
5: oh interesting so there is there is a version of this where not only do you pick up the brass ring Mm -hmm. on the carousel there is a target that you can throw the brass ring at uh it's like a clown face with like a hole where the mouth is and if you throw it into the hole (laughs) properly it's like (laughs) then you get a prize (laughs)
6: <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I thought you'd just grab it. No, uh, no but that's there. it. Some
5: some of them have it where you just <laughs> some grab have it. Yeah, some of them just it, grab yeah, it and okay. you get a free one. But like this this thing on the Santa Cruz beach boardwalk, like up the Annie.
6: <laughs> yeah, really. You got to turn it in for a token and you got to go to the next window and turn that in for your prize. Oh my gosh, that's oh, nuts. That's interesting. Well, our, our hero in the film, the blonde boy, he grabs it, looks at it, and he says... <laughs> throws the ring towards the screen. It comes spitting out and it becomes what
5: else? The moon. That is a really nice transition though. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's perfectly, perfectly. Set. Yeah. This is, this is all CG. So our, our floating real brass ring is replaced by a CGI brass ring that then, then does like a whole morph thing where it gets bigger and bigger from the inside and then eventually turns into a sphere which then they do like a wipe to a probably was a physical model of the moon. And it's, it's actually really well done this transition. <laughs> and then like, this is, I'm going to say this seems very much like a nod to Mary Poppins.
6: It it, it does. Right. So, so and one of the kids though, is kind of giving a prelude to what's happening, he goes, It's dark and scary, right? And then the kids are riding around their moon, riding around the moon on their carousel animals while wearing costumes, a la Mary Poppins, like Howe said, and chanting, And then bats start flying in front of the moon. So we have a very creepy witch appears and and grabs out towards the audience. Another one of these, you know, great effects where the prickly fingers are coming at you. Very reminiscent of the film that replaced it, right? Uh, Captain EO. Oh, right. right. She comes out, you think
5: I'm pretty, right? And the hands come out at you. Um, There are definitely more than a few instances of cheap 3D (laughs) tricks in this. We've
6: got a couple coming up here that really... Really, yeah. So she starts to back away, and her lightning causes all these eerie masks that seem to go on for about one mask too many, right? And now we're really (laughs) getting into the trippy stuff. So we're not making this up, but a feline type mask comes up, and we start to hear a meow, and it transitions to the boy in a room with a cat. And this is a really quick scene. He just reaches out for it and. JT, what, what do you think the cat would turn into? You know, what what would you do if you're reaching out for a cat?
7: Frog. A frog? <laughs> frog is wrong. <laughs> frog
6: is wrong. It turns into a sphinx, huh? and then it gets initi- immediately transitioned to a circus, where the lion starts running through a flaming hoop. So I don't know how you get from masks to cat to sphinx to circus. I get the cat to sphinx thing. I, I can't of get that. And then you yeah. get the lion coming at you through the flaming hoop maybe the sphinx is to a lion
5: i it's it's so i think i think the masks are very quickly moving through cultures Mm. because i see a tie and then it goes to the olmec head from mexico and then i think something from papua new guinea and then you get the cat representing egypt but what's funny is they landed or maybe it's china because you it, that room you're in for like just a quick second yeah. looks very very oriental. Asian. Yeah, 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 yeah,
6: yeah. It really is. It's it's really into the red door and all the paintings on it. And, and that that is there's a cat statue or something behind him too, which is which is yeah. really interesting. Did,
5: did you find any of the detail about the um, the model for Egypt from the Sphinx that they made?
6: I did not. So if you've got that, tell the story.
5: I'm gonna go by memory here, but I recall reading an article about this, and I want to say. it's very briefly on screen, but this set was enormous. I want to say the Sphinx was probably 10 or 12 feet high. And the depth of the room was probably 50 or 60 feet in order to do this shot and have it be effective in 3d. So, I mean, it's for something we always talk about how stuff, you know, it takes months and months and months and they do a shot that lasts for five seconds. Like, and that's, what disney did back then it's like they built this enormous set for this very what five six seven yeah seconds you get a quick the- snippet
6: of it first and the, the 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 zoom in and it's over it's all
5: yeah they
4: spared no expense that's right
5: yeah
6: very similar to horizons right the end of horizons were they how much did they spend on that right, right. for for those 30 seconds the giant
5: years a year and a half to for, for 30 uh, seconds yeah
6: <laughs> all right so we've got the Lion through the flaming hoop this is where we go a little low on the 3d gags right so we got trapeze and tightrope tightrope artists performing um the kids are afraid the performers will fall and they say it's scary so what do you do you have one of the tightrope walkers fall i mean naturally right the kids are scared of it so the, the the gentleman slips off the kids gasp but then hey you know tragedy is brought forth with a little bit of of, of happiness what what more than a clown with a giant horn that blows it out into the front of the faces in the audience you know <laughs> this is where i think i pretty much lost it because uh, I, I i don't know gentlemen i'm not a fan of clowns i consider I consider them concentrated evil. I, I, they're just there's something creepy about them. I just can't take it. So yeah,
4: every month we're getting into clowns. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> we, we did oh my bozo god last month. Too. We had bozo. Stuck we had on, the, stuck on some clown, from right? The right? We had the
6: coaster. We were talking about clowns. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Are we talking about clowns at Pleasure Island. Or? <laughs> so the problem here is that we get more clowns. They come out of the little clown cars and they do really these gags that are really suited to 3d you know carrying a long ladder they play the trombone uh the boxing glove at the end of it they're throwing pies um and then we do the the giant stilt walker which is really an interesting angle for this guy he's got like these are major stilts it's actually really impressive um and the kids are like oh
5: i can't believe i can't believe you left out the little person dressed as a baby who gets <laughs> like knocked out of a baby carriage, and then squirts the audience <laughs> with a giant baby bottle. I only had room
6: for so much, but thanks, Al, for adding it. Yeah, in.
5: <laughs> that's that's the epitome of class. And oh yeah, quality. It, it's like
7: I do think it's funny. There's another th- uh, 3D pie, like Muppet Vision, yeah. in this.
6: There, there's a yeah. couple gags that just you know they they. Throughout the years,
7: they this keep on giving. This one wasn't
4: remote control, though, JT. was oh, not oh, a remote control good. pie. That's a good point.
7: That's a good point. Good yeah. point. Good point. What kind of pie was yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> so the kids are concerned
6: that the must be really, really scary up there. His legs are bony. He'd make a good basketball player. Um, and the view here is from the floor. The kid's looking up, uh, and, and they claim he's getting taller. And then now we have balloons starting to fall down on us. Um. Here's another little trippiness. Here, the circus now has transitioned to become tiny, and the figures of clowns and such have turned into mechanical automatons. Uh, and the boy is now watching them. Flying mechanical toy appears. The boy, you know, he tries to reach out and get them. They go up towards the ceiling, and suddenly we see the galaxy in the sky. And um, the boy asks. Do you believe in magic? And is suddenly back at the circus and joins some other children watching a magician. So uh, the magician does his little thing, pulls out a dove out of his hat, waves his wand, and um, the boy appears at the edge of the hat and falls. you know, this actually reminds me of something out of like dream finders. Um, was it how up an image works where you could act right where you're, you're shrunken down. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, and and right, you're yeah, like, jump yeah, off. Yeah. It, it really reminded, uh, what was it called? I can't remember a dream
5: fighters acting. The dream fighter school of, drama. school of drama. That's it. Thank you. But yeah, this, this is the one place where it's, I think the optical effect of him being shrunk down and on the hat is probably a little obvious. Yeah,
6: yeah. So he falls off the edge of the hat. He drifts through space and, you know, puts his arms out again and begins to fly. Yeah. And now we're getting towards the end of the film. But he appears to be going backwards in time. His eye that we talked about earlier is shown again from the moment he blew the dandelion. And they play the film backwards. So the dandelion seeds come out from behind you and go back onto the flower.
5: I wonder if this space sequence was all done in uh, CGI, too. Probably. I mean, I, I mean, uh, I bet. You know what? It, if not, I bet it was, which would have been, again, not something that uh, real again, uh, loads and loads of work for something that was very very fast. Right, right. The,
6: I mean, it's and it's not super complicated. I mean, there's a little bit, but it, you wonder about the the galaxy, right? That's that's definitely some sort of CG yeah. CG work as he's going there. So, um, so we we transition here to uh, to the final scene after the dandelion, and we are back in the, the the field, and his his friends are saying, "Oh, I'm so tired," and I you know I think it's implying that he fell asleep. <laughs> Right? And they start running back through the field and the groves of trees. So the camera pans up uh, from those trees and the film title uh, Magic Journeys comes back up, swoops over us again, and then it's followed uh, by none other than the Kodak logo.
4: get the sense with all of these expensive shots and these stories literally from every pavilion in Epcot that somewhere it it took them until the park was done for someone to work out that hey the sponsors are paying for half of this so who cares just just do whatever we need to do <laughs> that's right that the math didn't quite compute uh cuz there's stories like this from every <laughs> pavilion where they just did insanely expensive things for no reason Right, uh, for no good reason, anyway. <laughs> you,
6: you could have blue screen these with kids and into something—not even blue screen—but you could have just matted them over a black piece of cardboard with pinholes, and it would have worked. <laughs> right, there are other
4: ways to have yeah. done it that would have been far more cost-effective, but just as you know, rich
5: in experience for the audience. Yeah, right, but right. as we said, they—you know—they were really focused with Epcot of making things ground-breaking,
4: absolutely, and yeah. that was the like and they succeeded because we're yeah. talking about it forty years later. And, yeah,
6: and, and finding all these things. So
7: well, that and they they set a standard now because if it's not groundbreaking and super unique, everybody complains about it now. Like they've that, right. got these expectations.
4: I, I read a I read a thing the other day. We'll, we'll we'll get into the present for a moment here, where someone's like, Disney hasn't opened a a, a good attraction. I forgot the time frame, but they were excluding like Rise of the Resistance. Now, even if Star Wars is not your thing. It's very hard to make the case that it's, like, not a groundbreaking attraction. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. <laughs> That's, true. I, That's true. I just, you know, sometimes we got some tough critics out there. Yeah, yeah.
6: <clears throat> Things came together correctly, and on October 1st, 1982, Magic Journeys premiered as one of the opening day attractions at Walt Disney World, and um, uh, according to the, the Orlando Sentinel, I read a couple articles here, Lerner actually was eavesdropping on people as they walked out of the theater during the first week. And uh, it was report as it was reported in the paper, a sold out 591 seat theater uh, constantly sold out. So um, a little bit later, uh, two years later on June 16th, 1984 magic journeys began a two year run at Disneyland. Now this is actually cool. It was done first on the outdoor space stage, <laughs> which they, every night the film would be projected after night, after nightfall. And, you would get don your glasses and watch it outside, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then uh, it moved to the Magic Eye Theater uh, later later on when that was when, when that was built in Tomorrowland. Um, it didn't stop there though; it uh, continued its westward journey and landed in Tokyo Disneyland on June seventeenth, nineteen eighty five. The attraction replaced uh, another film, ironically titled "The Eternal Seas." So it's really interesting how yeah. all these sea films, uh, one's replacing the other by magic journeys. Um, and um, apparently that movie only lasted about a year in, in Tokyo, Disneyland, the uh, Eternal Seas. Um, it didn't fare very well at the other parks, uh, in, in Captain Neo came out in 1987. So when you think about it, Magic Journeys in its original location only lasted five years. So um, in 1986, the film, film was officially removed from Disneyland and Epcot, um, and that's when Captain Neo came out in 87. Because remember, guys, that, that theater had to be basically ripped apart um, they did a lot of work for the on effects, that, that effects, effects, Captain the, Neo, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it was a it, lot.
4: It didn't die there in Florida, it, right? Tal? It did
6: not. It did not. In December of 1987, uh, they returned it to Walt Disney World at the Fantasyland Theater, which is where the Mickey Mouse Review originally was. Now, how I had a question for you: Did no. was anything in the theater between the Mickey Mouse Review and Magic Journeys, or was it just empty that whole time?
5: It, well, let's see. So, Mickey Mouse Review went out in eighty one or 82 so it could end up in Tokyo for 82 yeah. um I think it sat empty i my, my understanding is i i think they would do some cast member type events in there sometimes if okay. they needed a meeting place yeah but yeah it was it, there wasn't anything that ran in there that was for the public during that time period that's interesting
6: because it, it's a pretty decent sized theater and you know it's 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 decent so that's it interesting is, that it is. It was well I yeah mean, mickey's philhar
5: magic is there right right, right
6: exactly so um, when when it re- this is the first time I saw Magic Journeys was actually at Magic Kingdom. I remember being down there in the late 80s and I said, oh my gosh, this is a film I never got to see at Epcot. Um, and it was also paired with a great 3D short featuring Donald Duck and Chippendale and called Working for Peanuts, which I have to admit, I'd go in and just watch that because... <laughs> It's one of the best 3D films, or I think the only Donald Duck 3D film ever made, uh, and it's fantastic. If you haven't seen Working for Peanuts, it's it's a great one. It's it's typical Chip and Dale and Donald Duck having a. Can fit you see time. it if
4: you have a nut allergy?
6: Uh, I believe it is safe. Yes, yes. It is. So the film played there for six years until it closed in December 1993 to make room for Legend of the Lion King, and as how mentioned, that's where Mickey's Phil Her magic is today. So. Um, So, gentlemen, the story ends there for Magic Journeys. Uh, How's smarts to bring a tripod in will allow us to share you what we can or the entire clip of it. It's not super high resolution, but um, how was was nice enough to record it so many years ago. We've cleaned it up as best we can, and you'll certainly be able to watch that and kind of get the gist of the film. Remember what Murray said. You have to watch a film like this with the audience to experience it. So I think that's a really important. So you're going to watch it. You're going to be a little tainted and say, ah, I don't understand this. It's spooky, which I agree on the clowns. Um, but I think, you know, how you said it best, right? People reached out. They, That first scene, they were wow. They gasped. If you don't have that effect with everybody next to you, the film isn't the same.
5: Well, and even if you don't have this film in 3D, it's... <laughs> It's yeah, yeah, exactly. Pointless. I mean, <laughs> once you I mean, I think that's it's it's interesting, you know, we when we had Jeff Blython, we talked about how Disney had kind of made this transition with their Circle Vision movies from you know, we're doing travelogs and then slowly they start to uh, add elements of story onto it when they do uh, you know, Wonders of China and then by time he gets to, you know, Timekeeper yeah, it's like it's a full narrative that happens to be shot super well in 3D rather than a 3D movie that happens to have some narrative. And we see that same thing happen uh with 3D movies as as, uh, you know, they're they're really just kind of doing gags. Really, it's a, it's sort of a collection of gags and tricks and like just things that look cool in 3D, just kind of threaded together with a little bit of narrative. And then Captain Neo comes out and it's like it's. It's a music video with story and yeah. that gets upped again, you know, when Honey, I Shrunk the Audience comes out done as a, you know, a fake continual cut stage show, which is phenomenal. And then, as Brian said, you, you have the pinnacle of the 3D Disney movies, which is Muppet Vision 3D. Right. Uh, you know, they they learned the lessons every time they did one of these and figured out how to, like, parlay it into the real entertainment versus just like a really neat spectacle. And, and unfortunately, if you watch magic journeys now, um, as we saw when they showed this at the D 23 attraction, rewind, if it ain't 3d, if there's <laughs> just, it's not engaging That's right. at all in the least bit.
6: Yeah. And it definitely, you start to focus on elements that I don't think Marty Lerner wanted you to focus on. Right. It takes away that, um, ability to fall into the film, if you will. Um, and, uh, and be part of it. So.
5: Yeah, yeah. If, if it was ever released in 3D, I think it would be great. I think people would would get into it and enjoy it again. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a certain timelessness to it, I think, uh, where it could work. But, you know, yeah. we'll see.
7: You know, there's a theater in Epcot that they're just playing rerun Pixar shorts. They could put it in. I've heard <laughs> oh. that would be interesting. Yes, that,
6: you know, what's interesting. It, it, it could be played there because there's nothing special about the theater to play it in. Right. It doesn't need lasers. It doesn't oh, well, it's need it's even smoke.
4: easier now because you have digital projectors and
6: it could run every 15 every three shows if
5: they wanted to. Start, go start up your moveon.org. <laughs> not move, a, Is that the one where like everybody gets up the, change.org Change, the
6: right, yeah. change your, yeah, there we go. Do your change.org <laughs> move, things.
7: Move on would be the opposite. Move.
6: <laughs> move on. <laughs> move on is like don't we're never going to play it again. Yeah. We're done. <laughs> we're moving on. Uh JT you've been computing here in the past half hour. You were trying to compute the weight Of the film that uh, possibly Mark was carrying around, you're shaking. You got look. It looks like you got the uh, the old adding machine going. What do you got
7: here? Got the notes from my uh, computer printout. It ran out on the ribbon tape. The whole deal. You were Uh, rendering it. I was rendering (laughs) for. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I, you know, there's going to be some film experts out here that may have an issue with this. Yeah. I based this on the uh, Quentin Tarantino. 70 millimeter print of the hateful eight that made the news of the the film world mm-hmm. i don't know when that movie came out but they they did 70 millimeter on it and it was like a in the suitcase it shipped in it was like 350 pounds this one film and it was one okay. reel including a 13 minute intermission so i did some math on things uh did some multiplication now what's interesting is that film was shot at 24 frames per second so i had to multiply blah 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 didn't our interview um our, our guy here he told us mark, that it yeah. was mark um yep. one can or two why did he have two cans because he had the left and the right eye he okay the, um, so, so two each prints. can in my estimation at 75 frames per second was 3.66 pounds per minute and that equals about 58 pounds minus wow. the metal can. So go about 60 pounds each can he had to carry there. So 120 pounds he was lugging <laughs> through the airport.
6: Oh, man. All right. Well, any film buffs out there want to. Yeah.
7: The, yeah. the, the, the hateful aid at being a three hour film was only 220 pounds, but it was only 24 frames per second. So this frame, was right. three times the weight or yeah, three times the weight. That's crazy. That's crazy. Wow. Well,
6: if we have any film buffs out there that want to rebuke our uh, our estimates and numbers here, that that's a heavy that's a heavy piece of film. That's heavy duty.
7: Now, now you know why it got its own first class seat. It weighed more that's than right. a passenger for the most part. The <laughs> exactly.
6: <80s. laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, that wraps up the books on magic journeys. I appreciate you joining me for this three dimensional journey. I, I how I wish we could have recorded this in binaural sound. that would have been, you know added a little bit to it. <laughs> but uh, um, how do you have any, uh, t-shirt ideas coming out, uh, at all uh, with, with magic journeys in mind?
5: Well, uh, two things. One, um, thank you to all the people that, I, on the last episode, I said, if anybody remembers some of the things that we talked about that you thought would make great shirts, let me know. And, uh, more than a few of you actually wrote in saying like, you said you were going to do this. You said you were going to do this. So thank you. Cause <laughs> now I have have a base to work off of. Um, We did release a Disney MGM shirt. Yeah. uh, um, Earlier this week, based on the, if if you think of the the back lot when it was New York Street, well, I guess it was still there after it turned into the streets of the streets of America. Um, There was a sub, a fake subway station with uh, stairs that you could kind of walk down a little bit (laughs) to look like you were walking down a subway and there was a subway sign there. And I have reproduced that subway sign uh, exactly as it was uh, at Disney MGM uh, with our logo on it, of course, a little promo, but um, it makes it makes not only a great t-shirt but um the art prints are perfect for it it's the perfect rectangle uh we look fantastic on your wall if you're a fan of uh streets of america or new york street so good well go what's cool about
7: out. those how is if you go to manhattan they've got all the various subway signs shirts and magnets it looks just like that that's that's the i mean they, they all look like the subway sign but still it's cool to see a disney version
5: yeah and, it, oh, and I did actually some research into the station that they it was supposed i can i don't believe that the station actually existed mm-hmm. as they put it up in there um there there was an 18th i think i think it was 18th street there was an old station like back in the 1920s um that was kind of in the location that they say it was supposed to be i pulled out a map of new york city and it was looking at the actual subway say like oh did they just copy a real one it's like no they kind of like faked it together Mm. uh kind of kind of based on now that's a guess kind of based on where it looks like you might be standing because they didn't do an authentic like one spot in new york city where they uh made that backdrop like the the backdrop has the flat iron building on it and a bunch of other stuff that isn't exactly Right there, um, but you. Um, actually, we should do some research. We should do a back a backlot episode because I there was trying go. to figure yeah. out is there a spot where you get that view of the Flatiron Building and the Chrysler <laughs> Building and the Empire State Building? And I think the answer is no. Um, but yeah, so it's a neat little neat little souvenir of uh, something cool. that's that's gone.
6: Excellent, and I'm sure you'll have some other ideas pumped out pretty soon
5: too. So yes.
6: Um, Brian, I want to send it over to you. We have kind of a big announcement to make too about uh, something coming up in the next couple. Of, well, I should say next year, but it's uh
4: less than a year. Less than a year, yeah. So why don't well, we yeah. let them know about the big news? Well, by the time this episode gets released, uh, you will have uh, those of us, who, those of you who follow us on social media, will have seen our save the date announcement for Retro Magic Fifty. Now, that is not the 50th Retro Magic event,
1: <laughs>
4: uh, but it is Retro Magic, our event celebrating Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. It will be the weekend of April 23rd and 24th of 2022. So there's no excuse not to be there because we've given you more notice than anybody except maybe someone planning a wedding that weekend. So uh, you've got plenty of notice. Uh, Tell your mother-in-law now you're not available for whatever's that weekend. Uh, Tell the kids uh, their sports events are canceled because you're going to be in Orlando, Florida, Lake Buena Vista with uh, three or four hundred of your closest, nerdiest friends learning about uh, obscure things and not so obscure things with celebrity guests and uh, lots of goodies and we want to know
6: for. whether you got to get your RSVP cards, or chicken or fish, right? We got to get the headcount. Chicken at or some fish. Point. fish. Yeah. yeah I, every, <laughs> every
4: time I think about this announcement, I always think of the the posters for Wayne's World when it came out. It said, "You'll laugh, you'll hurl, you'll cry," <laughs> and uh, that's that's what we promise at Retro Magic. That's right. And we, I, I think
6: we should say to Brian, we learned a lot over the years with our different events. We're going to certainly make some changes to it to make it more comfortable for people. Uh, a little more food, a little more drink, a little more breaking it up a little bit more, and um, um, I think we joke last time too, we, we we shot for the moon,
4: and everybody decided to come, so we're going <laughs> to, we need to pull it back. Each event we make better. There we go. So this one will be our best event yet. There we
6: go. Climbing the ladder up, right? So we're looking forward to it, we can't wait to put it together, and uh, looking for another 48 hours of complete exhaustion, right Brian?
4: Uh, for us, yes, but for you, the fans, <laughs> it is nothing but fun. We'll make the sausage you just enjoy the dinner. There we do you go. still need Perfect. us to
7: run down and get a pontoon boat quickly?
4: <laughs> I do not. There will be no, no marine element <laughs> yeah. uh, to this to this event that I know of. However, if we locate one of the swan boats in the Bahamas <laughs> that might we might have we to might. tow that
6: up. Yeah we'll be changing. We'll be sneaking that into the <laughs> into the rivers of America. That's the best we can do for that right now. All right. All right, gentlemen. Well, that wraps it up. Um, next month we should probably announce where we're going, how are you are going to take us back to part 3, the final pleasure island. We're we're going to do a little congaloosh, I understand, right?
5: Yeah. We're going to we will talk specifically about uh, the Adventurers Club and the Comedy Warehouse. Awesome. And we'll see if we can close out Pleasure Island. Maybe, maybe, will or won't be the final countdown. Well, these three only amount to the pleasure. You need a full three more episodes
6: to talk about the island. Just the right? island itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to talk about how where it faces and the, the <laughs> rocky shores and things like that. So There were a bunch of big rocks, you know, then on we'll, the inside. We'll that's see. true. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. there is there, I, I remember it. I remember it well. So... Well, as always, we thank all of our listeners for tuning in and listening to us over the years. Uh, again, if you can, give us a shout-out, a review on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcasting app is. We appreciate everything you do for us, and we love bringing this show to you every month. If you can and you'd like to send us a donation, you can support us via our t-shirts at retroww.com forward slash support us. Or if you, can send, if you would like to send a donation, you can send it to lbvhistory.org forward slash donate. Once again, we really appreciate your listening, and we will be back next month with Pleasure Island Part 3.
4: And until then, Brian, check us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at lbvhistory and on the web at lbvhistory.org. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW. And follow our hosts, Todd McCartney, on Twitter at WDWMS. Hal Bowers on Twitter and Instagram at GoAwayGreen. JT Couger on Twitter at LS1JT and on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities.
1: To hold me in thee